stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I want to begin in this sound with a really interesting new book on Canada's military history from someone who's written a lot of books about Canada's military history. And, and certainly as we get to, toward Remembrance Day on Saturday. And don't forget, by the way, we are going to have our two-hour special remembrance uh, between 9 and 11 Saturday morning. We will have a two-minute uh, moment of silence right at 11 o'clock. Uh, so to let you know about that. But, you know, we're, we're obviously getting to a time when there are fewer and fewer, in fact, very few, World War II veterans uh, still alive, still with us to, to tell the story. So I think it's important to, uh, to know and understand and remember what they did. And what, what strikes me as fascinating about this, this next topic is that this is a part of World War II, and here we are in 2017, and we're, we're still kind of learning about it. Uh, so Mark Zelke has written uh, many books on Canada's military history. He won the uh, 2014 Governor General's History Award for Excellence in Popular Media, uh, was shortlisted the uh, previous year for the Governor General's History Award for Excellence in Popular Media. Uh, his latest book is called Cinderella Campaign. First, uh, First Canadian Army and the Battle for the Channel Ports. And so this was a, a very important campaign, relatively late in World War II. But had it not gone well, the war might have had a very different ending. So joining us to talk a bit more about this book uh, and this particular chapter of Canada's storied military history, very pleased to welcome to the program the aforementioned Mark Zelke. Mark, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. This is interesting how this book came about because uh, I get the sense that maybe it wasn't a story you were well aware of and it was in the course of uh, research for other books that you sort of stumbled upon this. Yes, that's right. Um, I was like a lot of historians uh, who, you know, we've, we use as our base of the official Canadian Army uh, history. Um, and the historian on that one had has sort of scampered across the um, campaign for the Channel Ports and as a result, um, everybody else just scampers along with him. And I had fallen into that same trap when I went forward to write a book called Terrible Victory about the Battle of the Shelf Estuary campaign. I had figured there was just not enough room to include the Channel Ports in that book. And I also felt that there probably wasn't a book in the Channel Ports um, campaign itself. And so it was sort of years later uh, when I was doing some research um, in that area that I, I started realizing what a pivotal battle it was that was going that had gone on for you know about six weeks and then just disappeared from from our memory. Well, and that's what strikes me as un unusual here, because I think we assume that maybe if Canadians don't know all these details, certainly the, the historians do, uh, and yet there, there's more yet we can still learn about uh, Canadian involvement in World War II. That's right, and I'm finding that, you know, in a sense, the Canadian Battle Series, which is the series I've been developing on the Canadian Army, uh, has run into, I've run into that in a number of cases, and, and then been able to really shine a light on a part of the campaigns that um, the Canadians fought and where they paid the heavy price in lives that had gotten forgotten by, because they were sort of overlooked by the official historian, in that he didn't have as much room in that volume that he was writing that he could put every detail in. So he selected certain campaigns to give minimal uh, attention to. And what I've now been realizing is when he's giving minimal att 
attention to something, there's probably still a very interesting and, and important story in there to be told, and the Cinderella campaign is one of those. Uh, and the name of the, the book comes from uh, the, the name, I guess, the, the First Canadian Army sort of gave themselves, right? They were known yeah. uh, to each other as the Cinderella Army? Yes, they started calling themselves the Cinderella Army as they moved into this campaign because um, the Americans were, of course, racing uh, rapidly across west uh, eastern France, heading for the German border. They liberated Paris and had a grand celebration. They weren't seeing much fighting because the Germans in that area had completely collapsed. The British were in a similar situation, moving very rapidly on the right flank of the Canadians and getting a priority on supplies to keep that advance going. So the Americans are getting well supplied, the, Canadi- the British are getting well supplied, and the Canadians are left to get whatever's left over. And at the same time, they've got this very difficult job of fighting in, in what's much more rugged terrain. The coastal part of France is, is far more rugged than the interior of France, which seems counterintuitive, but that's the reality. And so they're, they're doing the tough job, basically, and getting the lowest supply lines, access of all of the Allied armies. So they started to see themselves as being a little bit like Cinderella, and uh, call themselves the Cinderella Army. And to me, it just seemed that Cinderella campaign was, was essentially what we're looking at here. Right, and it's interesting when you talk about the battles for these ports because, you know, we, we think of D-Day and, and how important it was then to establish that beachhead. Now, as you say, we've got Allied troops moving across Europe, but they need to be resupplied. If we lose the ports, uh, then, then those troops would essentially be cut off, wouldn't they? Well, what was happening was all of the supplies that were coming into, um, into France to supply the Allied armies were still coming across the invasion beaches. And so the Germans, even as we're, they're giving up France, they're not giving up the channel ports. They're, uh, so the Le Havre, Bologna, um, uh, Calais, Dieppe, Dunkirk, all of these small ports, but if you take them all together, they become an essential supply stream of capacity. Um, and the Germans had turned those into fortresses, and they were under orders from Hitler to hold those ports to the last man and the last bullets. And so the Canadians basically have to go in and, and winkle them out of one port after another after another. And how difficult was that? It's really difficult because um, the garrisons were quite large. Um, smallest was 7,500 and the largest was 15,000 men. Um, the Canadians at this point uh, have suffered a lot of losses, and they're also having to send about th- two-thirds of the army north uh, to try and get up to Antwerp and open up that port. And that's the sub- subject matter of my book, Terrible Victory in the Shelf Estuary Battles. Um, so what we have is about 10,000 men at the most, uh, Canadians, diverted to taking the ports. So, in effect, they go into many of these battles outnumbered by the defenders who are inside the uh, port fortresses. And they've had since 1940, when they took France, to fortify these ports. And so they have these you know, large uh, networks of pill- concrete pillboxes, um, all loaded, uh, manned by machine guns and uh, large artillery pieces. So they're, the Canadians are going in somewhat outgunned and also outnumbered in many cases. How, how big had the 1st Canadian Army grown to by this point? 
The first Canadian Army at that this point was about a hundred thousand men, of which about thirty thousand were British troops who uh, serving in what was called First British Corps. Um, and actually, one of the things I like about the Cinderella campaign is First British Corps generally because it's part of First Canadian Army. In the British histories, it tends to be just forgotten because nobody can figure out how to weave them into the action for the British. And they play a vital role here in the attack on Le Havre. And so I was able to actually, you know, give a a good account of their experiences and actually, in my mind, a tip of the hat to these British allies of ours. It's interesting because, you know, as you note in the book, I mean, Securing these ports did become a, a top priority, but yet it seems as though that this was still somewhat of a, a thankless job. It seems like yeah. a, a contradiction, doesn't it? It was a contradiction because, <laughs> you know, and, and it comes down to General Montgomery, Field Marshal Montgomery at this point. He's been promoted, Bernard Montgomery. And he's got two different agendas that he's got running. He, on the one hand, he wants these ports open, but on the other hand, he's putting all of his attention and supplies as he into launching Operation Market Garden, which is the famous bridge too far uh, in the movie, um, where he's trying to break through to Arnhem and then get across the Rhine River there and into Germany. So he's, on the one hand, he thinks that if Operation Market Garden comes together and works, that he can win the war before Christmas. You know, everyone's always wanting to win a war before Christmas. And on the other hand, he... If this goes badly, he's desperately needing these ports to get the supplies that he needs to keep the armies in supplies to survive a winter. So he's got this contradiction. And so he sort of just turns to the Canadians and says, well, you do the job with what we give you. (laughs) And meanwhile, I'm over here focused on Operation Market Garden. So these Canadians are tasked with going essentially then port by port, which, as you say, we're, we're entrenched with these built-in defenses. So these are incredibly difficult battles, which obviously meant some, some heavy losses in some cases. Yes. So the, uh, the total losses in the entire Channel Ports campaign come up to about 2,500 men. Um, they were able to keep the losses down slightly by taking uh, the time to bring up specialized equipment from one port to another to another. And these were provided by a British unit called the 79th Armored Division. And they were uh, what were called funnies. And they were specialized tanks. Um, There were bridge-laying tanks. There was a tank with a rotating drum and uh, chains attached to it called the flail that um, detonated minefields. They could work their way through a minefield, open up a channel for the infantry and that to come in behind them. And flamethrower tanks and uh, this tank that had a big 40-millimeter gun on it that could smash concrete positions open with just the sheer size of its shell. So they had to have... There was only a certain number of these vehicles, so they could only attack one port at a time because of there were little limitations of these vehicles only being available in enough numbers to do one port at a time. Without those that equipment, I don't think they would have been able to take any of these ports. Are there any veterans of this campaign still with us today? Were you able to get some, some first-hand accounts of this? There were a couple, um, but not very many anymore. Um, I had to rely much more, like if you go back to when I was first doing my first book, Ortona, I was able to interview about 150 veterans for that book. 
Um, nowadays, I'm interviewing two, three. Um, there are other ones who are alive, but mostly their memories are such that they don't really recall where certain incidents happened. They can rec- give you a number of incidents, but they can't place it into a contextual, like, this is where I was. Um, so it's not that useful anymore. Um, fortunately, um, many of the veterans did get interviewed by various other projects uh, around uh, over the years. Um, I use a collection at the University of Victoria here, for example, where they have hundreds of interviews where um, the uh, military history department here in UVic uh, sent out its grad students over a period of about 20 years in uh, 1970 to 1990 and interviewed um, all the retired soldiers, you know, Victoria is a retirement place, and soldiers, many of them, came from all over Canada to retire here, so it was a very fertile ground for doing these kind of interviews. So I'm able to still get interviews, but to be able to interview actual veterans now is a, is a rarity, unfortunately. Right, that's, that's the reality of, of the time we're living in now. Um, but but you do note in the preface of the book that you, you, by writing this story, you, you want to, to honor these, these soldiers. What, what do you mean by that? I think when I look at a story like the Channel, the Cinderella campaign and the Channel Ports, um, and we know now that it's been largely kind of ignored and forgotten, that by writing the books, I'm hoping to shine a light into the experiences of those soldiers in that kind of forgotten campaign. And as a result, that, you know, my work is really intended to honor the memory and the experiences of um, that whole generation in the 1940s marched off to war, and so, so, so many of them just never came back. Well, the book is called The Cinderella Campaign, and uh, we'll let people know as well, you're going to be in Calgary, uh, part of a book launch event. It's Thursday, November 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Military Museum. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Congrats on the book, and uh, much appreciated once again. You're more than welcome, and thanks for having me. All right, there you go. That's uh, Mark Zelke, uh, celebrated uh, Canadian historian and author. His latest book, The Cinderella Campaign, First Canadian Army and the Battle for the Channel Ports. As mentioned, November 23rd, it's uh, Thursday, I believe. He's in town for an event that evening at the Military Museum. Our number here, 974-8255. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.